Hello, and welcome to the Workplace Justice Podcast. This podcast helps to inform and empower you about your rights within the workplace. We cover topics and examples of various matters in employment law, including sexual harassment, pregnancy discrimination, racial discrimination, how the courts define a hostile work environment, whistleblowing, and everything in between. Workplace Justice is brought to you by the New York City Employment and Civil Rights Law Firm, Nassar Law Group. Here are your hosts, Mahir Nassar, Casey Wolnowski, and Jeffrey Rosenberg. Thank you for listening to the Workplace Justice Podcast. I am your host, Meyer Nassar, and I'm joined with co-hosts Casey Wolnowski and Jeffrey Rosenberg. Today's episode is dedicated to understanding sexual harassment within the workplace. Today, we are joined by an award-winning investigative journalist who has been featured as a columnist at New York Times, Bloomberg, The Street, and USA Today. She is the author of the Me Too book about sexual harassment on Wall Street, Tales from the Boom Boom Room, the landmark legal battles that expose Wall Street's shocking culture of sexual harassment. Susan and Tella, thank you so much for taking out the time to speak with us. My pleasure. I'm glad to be here. Susan, tell us about your book. I'm intrigued. Tell us about what made you write the book. Tell us the whole experience of really writing this book back in, I'm assuming, the 90s. I was writing it in the 90s, and it got published in 2002. So, yeah. So I had broken a story about a lawsuit that women at Smith Barney brought against the firm for sexual harassment. It became a class action suit. And... um, So I broke that story. I was writing a lot of follow-up stories, and it it actually was getting a lot of press attention at the time. And I can literally tell you the moment when I decided to write a book, because I was sitting at my desk at Bloomberg, and I had just seen a feature story in a Florida paper where a woman broker was featured, a Smith Barney broker, talking about how she loved her job and how well Smith Barney (laughs) treated her which was, you know, not the case in the, I don't know, 22,000 people who qualified for the class. And that weekend, I had seen a full-page ad in the New York Times magazine where Smith Barney was presenting itself as a real friend of women. It was it was a commercial about their breast cancer awareness efforts, which they had ne- never done anything like that before. And I sitting at my desk, I said, you know, if I don't write a book about this, these people are going to rewrite history. You know, they're going to spin this their way. They have a massive PR operation and they're going to change the facts here, alternate facts, right? And I just said at that moment, nothing is going to stop me. I'm going to write a book about this. And so, you know, it took a couple of years. I was threatened with lawsuits. It got pretty ugly. Talked to a lot of lawyers of men who were allegedly sexually harassing people. And in the end, I think I think that what I produced most importantly was really a roadmap for women. I mean, that's not the way it reads because it's a narrative, but really what I wanted was to just show exactly how this system worked so that any woman going into the system was going to understand the advisable stuff to do, the stuff she Mm -hmm. shouldn't do, and most of all, how she was going to be treated because it's, as all of you know, it's a terrible process for a woman to go through. So... That was that's sort of the short version of why I wrote the book and what it took. But there was a lot of blowback. There was there, you know, there were a lot of threats coming from lots of companies, including Smith Barney, whose whose lawyer. I, there there came a point in writing the book where a lot of people over a two year period had declined to speak with me 
And after a couple of years, I thought, you know, I'd better go back to them because anybody could call them and say I'm writing a book, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go back to them and tell them what I've learned about them and give them the option of commenting. And so I sent out, I think it was 44 certified registered letters to various players. And I said, you know, I mean, it was, they were really, the letters were crazy. I mean, the stuff that I had to like describe that they'd allegedly done. And one of the letters that I got back was a seven and a half page single space letter from the outside defamation council at Smith Barney, basically saying that if I wrote the book, they were going to sue me. Mm. And so it was a pretty contentious process. Yeah. The book was published after the case had already concluded and settled, or was it during um, the Well, litigation? it was actually during, because what okay. happened in that case was a judge certified the class, mm -hmm. and instead of proceeding and doing what often is done or usually is done, getting a chunk of money that then be distributed, they set up a system, another system of arbitration. So the women who were in the class then had to go one by one into an arbitration system that was set up using some people at Duke University. And they had it in two tiers. First, mm -hmm. you could just, well, first, you could just get an offer from the company for how much money they'd like to give you. And if you didn't like that, you could go into mediation. And if the mediation didn't work, you could then go into this arbitration and interestingly, for the first time ever, the arbitration was going to allow members of the media. Well, I, I read, you know, I read these so terms. So it was not first, confidential. No, it was the only time that. Oh, wow. It's the only okay. time arbitrations were not confidential. And I read these terms and I said, they're not going to let anything go to arbitration, you know. But in fact, a few of them did. And I attended, I don't know, I think five or six different arbitrations. They were really interesting. There was a later lawsuit by, by women at Merrill Lynch, a very similar lawsuit, and with the same plaintiff's lawyers, and a very similar arbitration system was set up there, and I went to a lot of those arbitrations too. So by the time I wrote the book, there were, when I wrote the book, there still were some women who had not gotten all the way through that arbitration system. Okay. Yeah, and that's a very common process. At least what we've seen is when you have Wall Street banks or hedge funds is that they have these very particular and very thoroughly drafted employment agreements when you start that basically say, if for any there's any legal matter for which you seek to pursue, the first step is mandatory mediation. And if that is unsuccessful, you have mandatory arbitration. I mean, they're that's doing... that's pursuant to FINRA, right? You have FINRAs in there as well, but for... The matters involving what we do, you know, we, we do most stuff which is out, outside of FINRA, and it's basically everything they can do to keep you out of court, right? It, it, even right. even it's the whole mandatory mediation process supersedes the ability to even file in court because a lot of times people challenge the arbitration agreements as being unenforceable, but the mediation provision is absolutely enforceable. So it's that first bite at the apple is well. Even so that we can keep it out of any kind of court, we're first going to have a mediation process. It's very right. common with banks, with big it's, banks especially. It still doesn't prevent plaintiff's counsel from filing the lawsuit, getting it Which into the public record, dream, and then forcing them to <laughs> compel arbitration. Yeah, well, let's put it this way. And this comes from just a plaintiff's attorney. I've never met a plaintiff's attorney, a good one, who cannot find a reason to challenge an arbitration agreement. Right. You might not win, right? But you can get it in court. You can get it filed, and you can get the court to basically say, you have to give me interim reports about what's going on with it, and that way, if the defendants, right, if they are pulling any games and funny business with the arbitration, at that point, you can reach out to the court and say, 
they're violating the arbitration agreement, so the court should rip it up as unenforceable and we should proceed through the, the court process. At that point, that's when defendants, because we're recording, I'm not going to say what I was ordinarily going to say, <laughs> but they, they get scared and that's when they begin to mysteriously very much comply with the arbitration process all of a sudden. As soon as you say, I'm right in the court to tell them you're not following the rules and I want this to be deemed unenforceable. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on a minute. So, And now there's a whole issue with, you know, there's a new law in New York that prohibits arbitration, mandatory arbitration agreements, someone dealing with discrimination cases, including sexual harassment. And there's a split in authority now as to whether it's actually enforceable or whether the Federal Arbitrations Act preempts it. So right now there's a federal court that found that it was unenforceable and a state court decision that's found that it was enforceable. And you know who you can thank for that law, right? Yeah. Matt Lauer. Uh, <laughs> I'm not kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not being. I'm being serious. Yeah. It's all because of what was going on in Me Too and and a lot of the the networks, Fox News, NBC. That's why there was this impetus to pass new laws. Mm-hmm. So thank you, Matt Lauer. We have good law in the books now because of Hopefully. you. Hopefully, we don't know. Well, hey, you know, right. you know, you guys will love this. Do you know that Matt Lauer once interviewed me on the Today Show about sexual harassment? Really? <laughs> Which interview did you have that is after everything really came to light with him, where you look at that interview and you just shake your head and you say, "It's not that he's self that he's he lacks self awareness. It's that he's just." delusional what interview was it where he is really coming at somebody whereby it's really criticism about sexual harassment and this is all while everything was going on i mean it's all laid out in the catch and kill book i'll have to remember it i wish i knew it off the top of my head right now but it it became a very famous interview much after the interview took place so for the women that are listening to this i think it's really important that as we're talking about arbitration, mandatory arbitration that a lot of employers try to provide employees. What are some of the considerations that, number one, what is the reason behind the employer's decision to actually do this? Why do they want you to sign off on mandatory arbitration clauses, non-disclosures before anything even happens? What are they actually looking to prevent? Well, they don't want anything in the public domain, nothing. Nothing. And recently, I've actually seen some brokerage firms are getting away from FINRA. Some brokerage firms are actually now putting in their employment agreements that you'll go to AAA, the American Arbitration Association, or JAMS. And I would speculate that one reason they'd rather do that is that FINRA puts out public awards. FINRA puts out in the end a decision. Now, they don't tell you very much typically, but at least you have a name of a plaintiff, a defendant, a firm, right, and a decision, and usually a little something about the case, sometimes more than that, but usually it's just a little. And I think that even that was more than the securities industry wanted to put up with. And the other thing is that they they go to these other forums, and they also lock up, in doing that, they lock up promises that people can't even talk about their arbitrations, mm-hmm. right? So... I don't think, I don't think that AAA or jams, I know that FINRA doesn't say, FINRA says you can go ahead and talk about whatever you want in your arbitration. You can talk Mm -hmm. about the case, about the hearing. They just don't make the documents public, right? Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about when you were going through the process of writing your book. And a lot of the, when I read many different portions of your book, I saw a lot of different stories of women 
and about the experience within the environment, the work cultures, the the toxic environments that they had to endure. And I guess for the listeners that are listening, have you seen, like, can you kind of give us a little bit of the background into like that culture and how much has that culture changed in the last, let's say now in 2021 from the time when you actually wrote this book that you know it, of? It, yeah. In the 1990s and 2000s, it was pretty blatant. People would send strippers into, you know, the trading room. Men would grab women in front of other people. The, the actual boom boom, there was a thing called the boom boom room. The, the, a Smith Barney branch had a basement party room that they called the boom boom room. And the guys would go down there and get drunk. And women would go down there sometimes too, but they were very uncomfortable about it. So I guess the bottom line of that era was do whatever you want and you don't have to hide it. I would say that since Me Too, men have caught on that you'd better hide it because people are on to them. So there's still sexual harassment. Let's, you know, let's not fool ourselves. You guys know more than anybody because you see the cases coming in. But I think that men are smarter to do what they do or say what they say when there aren't people around. So I think that that's, that's one big difference. The other thing that's really different is women are so much better informed and as a result of like the Gretchen Carlson suit mm-hmm. against Fox News, she recorded, you know, she recorded her harasser, right? And I think that women, an awful lot of women, and I'm sure you guys, you can tell me what you see, but an awful lot of women walk into the offices of the lawyers I speak to, and they've already got recordings of guys harassing them. So women are just, they're much more savvy about building their record before they actually file a complaint. I think education is the biggest difference and that you don't see it so, so blatantly, but it still happens. Were a lot of the women in the 90s that you interviewed, were a lot of the women hesitant to come forward out of fear of retribution? Or Because I'm surprised you even got that many women to, to talk to. Yeah, well, it was not, yeah, okay. it wasn't easy. It okay. definitely wasn't easy. They were terrified. Yeah, that's what I was They were saying. terrified. I remember when I was first working on that very first story about the coming lawsuit, I had a draft of the lawsuit before it was filed. Mm -hmm. And I was lining up interviews to do when I got home at night because they couldn't talk to me from work. And, you know, it was pulling teeth. I had to have like, I had to have people like vouch for my character and, you Mm -hmm. know, and then finally I would get an interview set up. Half the time I would get on the phone with these women, they'd start telling me their story and they would get so upset that they couldn't proceed with the interview. Mm. And so, yes, it took a long time to gain trust from people. Okay. It took an even longer time for people to agree to go on the record. Right. And I, you know, I I love when people go on the record because it helps my stories, right? Um, The credibility of them. But I also understand why women don't want to, Mm -hmm. because when you speak out your history. Right. So yes, they were, they were very, very frightened. Okay. And to this day, a lot of the women from back then, when I talk to them, I mean, they'll still break down and cry about what happened to them. And they still feel the impact and PTSD. They're very sad stories of mm-hmm. what happened to them. Susan, I wanted to ask you, how do you see, I guess, the Me Too movement? And how do you see sexual harassment allegations and complaints, and I guess sexual harassment in general, that actually happening in a post-COVID landscape? And the reason I ask is because mm-hmm. COVID has taken its toll, obviously, on a a lot of daily activities and a lot of things that we kind of took for granted socially, right, in terms of just free movement. And we've seen at least a a drought, right, in in terms of the number of of people who are complaining of sexual harassment or sexual harassment cases. 
I think by virtue of the fact that people just aren't going to work. People are working from home. The things that typically lead to sexual harassment are, are just haven't existed as much. For example, I remember Jeff and I worked together at a firm where you could almost bank on Christmas party sexual harassment allegations from basically mid-December until mid-January. We would get calls all the time about this. And obviously, you didn't have any holiday parties. You didn't have Halloween parties, so on and so forth. So I guess back to my original question is, what, if anything, do you see the COVID-19 pandemic and, and the hiatus from people going into the office and, and having social gatherings? And how do you think that'll impact, I guess, people sexually harassing others going forward, if at all? Yeah, well, you're certainly right. We have not seen the volume of cases we would ordinarily see. And I haven't researched these, but I have spoken to lawyers who have told me sexual harassment is still happening, mm -hmm. even in what we're doing right now. People speaking inappropriately, things like that, texting inappropriately. You don't have any supervision now, right? If you've got a bunch of stockbrokers, there's nobody watching them anymore mm -hmm. in the branch, their home. Mm -hmm. So there's a little more leeway to behave badly. So they may not be touching anybody, but they still could be saying things and doing something on a video like this. But I haven't, I haven't had an opportunity to research any cases like that. Mm -hmm. Lawyers have spoken to me very generally about it. All right. And as an aside, I just wanted to say, for those listening at home, it was Matt Lauer interviewed Bill O'Reilly on the Today wow. Show in September of 2017. Two months later is when uh, the hammer got brought down on Matt Lauer. But if you ever have a free five or ten minutes and you want to check it out, I'm sure it's on YouTube. If you want to look up the words irony yeah. and delusional in the dictionary uh, <laughs> and basically put those on Matt Lauer's head, that's what you'll see. It, it's a crazy interview. So anyway, listeners at home. If you have five to 10 minutes and you're bored, check it out. You've got a good laugh out of it. Yeah. So Susan, tell us a little bit about just kind of following up on Jeff's question about the challenges associated with speaking up for women within the workplace about their experiences and kind of also compounding on what you said before, that men are a little bit more aware about how they have to navigate and engaging in these type of behaviors. In that context, a lot of times things may not be as blatant. And sometimes when you collectively put all things together, it kind of has a psychological, emotional impact over time. It's abusive. In terms of that, how do you see women speaking up about what they're going through, whether it's within the workplace or remotely, especially when there are just so many different ways in which men that are engaging in this are also covering their tracks or looking to not be detected in the process? You know, what comes to mind right away is the dichotomy between younger women and older women. You know, those women we were talking about before from the 90s and 2000s, they were terrified to speak up and they were just bullied into shutting up. I think there's a real change generationally. I think that younger women are more willing to speak up. Partly it's the Me Too thing, but I think partly it's just a change, a generational change that was happening anyway. I actually spoke to a young woman at a big brokerage firm last week, and she said, you know, we just don't take it. We just don't put up with that stuff. And yeah. she said one of her colleagues was saying inappropriate things to her, and she like stood up and everybody could hear her. And she said, don't ever speak to me that way again. That's inappropriate. You should never be speaking to somebody that way. And like, believe me, there were very few of the women. They may have tried quietly in the 1990s and the 2000s to say things like that. But there was very little of that sort of stand up and be noticed thing. And social media, they know how to use social media. There was no social media back then. Mm -hmm. It's changed everything for women. And so 
I think that the speaking up thing is much easier for women and there's strength in numbers and the women coming in are just more willing to say something. That having been said, I worry sometimes because there's a pattern that I've never seen change yet, which is you speak up too loudly and eventually you lose your job. And we haven't seen this whole cycle finish with the women who were inspired by Me Too and who just in any event, they have more older mentors who help them. We don't know yet what's going to happen to them as a result of speaking up. Some of them speak up so loudly that there's a woman who worked at BlackRock who posted something on Medium in February. Well, she's already been fired, so she has nothing to lose, right? But even with somebody like that, there's traditionally a stigma that goes with that where you go for a job, somebody types your name in, and you pop up on Google as having said something. And I think that's really important, actually, for your your viewers to know. It's I love that women are speaking up. There's nothing better than that, right? But you do have to understand the reality that when you go for a new job, people are going to see that stuff. And you can find a lot of reasons to not hire somebody that may not be, gee, it's because you made trouble for BlackRock or for somebody else. But Mm -hmm. So they are speaking up. And I think that that's great. I just think that people really need to understand what could happen to them when they do. Yeah. And I think, Susan, what you're saying is I hope that we have a detente, if you will, or that there is a, a period in time where it is normalized where people understand that standing up for oneself is okay. And people look at that as a good thing or nothing Mm -hmm. versus view it as a bad thing. Like this person's going to be a troublemaker. This person's a rabble rouser. This person is too sensitive. This person needs to get over it. We don't want a person like this in our office because I very recently had a, I want to say a girl, even though she's a young woman, I saw her as a girl because at the time she was in college who was sexually harassed by a very prominent member of this organization where she worked and she stood up for herself and a lawsuit was filed. It was ultimately resolved to the mutual satisfaction of all parties, but nevertheless, it got a good amount of press. Not that she had any control over that. She had none. And furthermore, the complaint was publicly filed. So her name is attached to that. And she called me and she said, I'm out of college now. It's very difficult to get a job. I'm asked about this all the time in interviews because they Google my name, right? And she got to the point where she says, you know, I don't know what to do with this. Do I own this and become an advocate and this defines me the rest of my life? Or do I try to put it in the past and say, this is something that happened to me when I was 19 years old. A very prominent person in an organization touched me without my consent. Again, this is all public record, so I'm not telling anything that's confidential. I stood up for myself. I want to put it in my past and move on and have a, a future and a career and have it something that doesn't define me, but I'm caught in, in at, a, at a crossroads. What do I do? And, and I had to have a very difficult conversation with her and talk to her about, well, you know, what is it that you want? And hopefully a company, the right company is not going to judge you based on this. They're going to judge you based on your merit. And they're going to look at this and say, we want somebody like this, as opposed to someone who just keeps quiet and doesn't say anything, you know, and I'm hoping that we normalize people standing up for themselves to the point where it's seen as a positive and it doesn't act as a blemish on the higher ability of, of people. And I, I people, I mean, mostly women, because it's mostly women who are coming forward as victims of sexual harassment. For that to change, you really have to have a fundamental change of philosophy at U.S. corporations, don't you? Because Mm. that would be great. I agree with you that that's a great goal. But as of now, most HR departments are, you know, they're a tool of management to protect management. They are not Mm -hmm. there to protect people who come to them with complaints. 
And it's important for women to know that. I think women, I think people have caught on to that, actually, that HR is not there to help them. Mm -hmm. That's a big piece of progress right there, that people understand that. I think that kind of change, you see right now that we have a lot of very controversial shareholder proposals in this proxy season Mm -hmm. at company, at publicly held companies, where some shareholders are getting at this point that you need to change your complaint system, that you need to get at some of these philosophical issues and start disclosing. Can you imagine if companies had to disclose the number of internal complaints they got every year and tell how many civil rights complaints there were, and most importantly, tell how many of them were decided in favor of the complainant? which we all know that it's a minuscule percentage, if any, if any at all. I mean, that kind of change could fundamentally change everything that the four of us are talking about, I think. If, yeah, and if to that, could go to but unfortunately, company. as we know, still today, the most common employment claim are claims of retaliation, not claims of discrimination. Right. We're making progress, but it's that retaliation that we're talking about that is still a huge hurdle to get past. Yeah. And Susan, to that, and yeah. we were talking about, I, I can tell you that, and I, I, that this, all this stuff I have to keep confidential, but what I can tell you is that we recently had a case that we were working on whereby it was against a hospital, which will remain nameless, but they had mentioned that throughout the discovery process, it was through a deposition that they had in the past, like, I don't forget how long, you know, a year that they had investigated over 150 claims of discrimination within at the hospital. And of course, my natural follow-up question was, and how many were resolved in favor of the hospital, right? And she kind of took a second to think about it and came back and she said with confidence and conviction, she said, all of them. And I thought to myself, Wait, all like, of them were all of them were resolved in the favor of the hospital. Which oh, meant okay. that they had concluded <laughs> yeah. that they were all without merit. And I said I said, Are you serious? Yeah. You're telling me that you investigated a hundred over hundred and fifty complaints That's of discrimination and there was not a single one of them that was meritorious. And she said, Absolutely. And I thought to myself, I'm like, there's not a single juror, there's not a single reasonable person that is going to look at that and think anything that it is just a kangaroo Mickey Mouse process so that you can rubber stamp it and then talk about how the percentages are so great because the HR department does such a substantial job. I mean, but like you said, you'd have to have a systemic change in how you view these instead of the HR department kind of looking it through the lens of how can we resolve this in our favor? Because resolving it not in our favor is is bad. And that would be, we'd have to make some difficult decisions then. And we don't want to do that. Right. Right. The company is paying their, their paychecks. So that's who they're going to defer to. Just following up on what Casey was saying, a major aspect of raising one's voice against these forms of sexual harassment or any form of discrimination is that, especially with sexual harassment, that a lot of times the focus for employers and those that are involved is to, in essence, silence those that have experienced and endured these difficult things in exchange for money, compensation. And so with respect to non-disclosure agreements, confidentiality, I guess I wanted to get your thoughts on, I know that many women may actually benefit from the idea of, you know, kind of following up on what Casey was saying, making sure that these things are out of the limelight so that they can move on with their life and not have to deal with a lingering impact within their career. But to some extent, a lot of these events, the Me Too movement, has brought a lot more courage for women to speak up about things. And it's because of the stories that we have learned about that others have stood up and said, Me Too, this happened to me. So while the law and employers and parties look to try to 
close up and move on. What are your thoughts about, in some sense, eliminating these non-disclosure aspects to these situations? Well, I mean, you guys are lawyers. You know, it's it's it would be kind of hard to say that contractually you can't do something, right? Right. I, I mean, and boy, I I mean, yes, it would solve a lot of problems if you couldn't mm-hmm. do that. I just don't know if there's a legal way to say that you can't. Although some of right. those state laws, haven't they said that you can't you can't force yes. NDAs on people, or you can't? Yeah. I mean, look, I don't blame women who've gone through trauma who start to see how the complaint process ends up working. Mm. I don't blame them for taking the money. I, I, can't, I just can't, no, right? Do I love when they speak up and they, you know, talk to people like me, oh, you know, talk to anybody, not just me, you know, talk to somebody about it, go public about it. Yeah, because I think that every time a woman does that, it makes a difference. And yeah. that's when it comes down to people like you really knowing your clients and knowing which ones will be able to sustain themselves if they decide to go public and fight. Right. Absolutely. Right. Uh, some people are really vulnerable and I think cannot do that. When Susan, to that point is, is one thing I will say is that as much as people advocate for a wholesale elimination of NDAs, I think doing so has potential unintended negative consequences. Mm. And what I mean by that is there are a lot of people with whom we have consulted that haven't wanted to go public for any number of reasons, whether mm. they're good, bad or otherwise, it's a personal decision they've made. And there's other people who have potential legal claims, which would be very difficult to prove and have very thorny legal elements for which they may not prevail. And in being honest with them and talking to them about this is what the process will look like, it's oftentimes a good decision for a process to play out whereby there is a a confidential resolution. Now, I think that it has to be an individual process, an individual focus for every single person. And I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all. But I do think, for example, in New York, we have a 21-day mandatory consideration period, which has eliminated the throwing the agreement in someone's face saying, you need to sign this right now because if you don't, you walk out that door. It's getting taken off the table and we'll see what your career looks like going forward. And that's actually true. That's what did happen. And that's why the law was amended. But I think we just have to kind of be careful when we hear people say we want a wholesale elimination, because I think what it has the potential of doing is is chilling people from coming forward, knowing that if I want to come forward, it's going to have to be public. It's a public forum. And then it opens up to the scrutiny that comes with that. And the scrutiny and the blowback that people get, companies don't play fair. And what I mean by that is we had a client, again, will remain nameless and the the other company, when the company and the person on the other end will remain nameless. She was unfortunately sexually assaulted and came forward and we had a, a confidential mediation and the whole mediation turned into basically, you've hooked up with other guys in the office and we're going to say that this was consensual. And she was like, you know, I dated a coworker two or three years ago and you got to be kidding me that this is what's happening. And that's that's what happens a lot. And I've seen it more than once in many different forms or incarnations, but companies are going to play dirty. And it's important for people to know that going into it because we've had people who've walked away after going public, after asserting their rights, who have then said, if I'd have known how awful the company would have played this, I'm not sure I would have done it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we all know that at the point, because usually the complaint starts at the office, for various legal reasons, you have to let mm-hmm. the company do an investigation, no. mm-hmm. as you, of course, know. And the whole purpose of those investigations is to gather discovery for the company, right? And I've seen email threads where 
you know, somebody in HR is sending out an email, what do you have on this person, mm -hmm. right? Mary Smith has a complaint. What have you got on her? Let's start watching her. And they pull up all of the complainers' emails to see anything that they can find that looks a little bit questionable. So you're right. It's a very dirty game. It's a really dirty game. Which is why in this game, you have to understand the rules and you have to understand how to unfortunately play it. Because in many ways, the employers are out to protect themselves, their brand, their reputation, and the bottom line. And as an individual that goes through these things, it's so important that as you are complaining, as you are raising your voice, that you continue to do it in a way that is documented. And that way you have a record of it, that as they develop their record to reflect their version of the facts, yeah. you're doing the same for yourself. Because that's when the employer starts to feel like, oh, the record is starting to look a little bit like their version of the facts are entering in. And then we have to now look at this from the perspective of let's try to see if we can try to resolve this. Let's try to like deal with this in the appropriate way. Let's not make it harder and start pinning performance improvement plans and things to kind of push her, push her out given the fact that she is complaining. So I think it's highly, highly important to make sure that you continue to document these things yeah. in a manner which is, you know, in many ways by email. So that way you always have a copy of it. So that I think is one of the essential things that the best way that one can advocate for themselves is making sure you do it in a manner that is on the record. And also going back to the NDAs, what I think is important is that the decision whether or not to make an agreement confidential should be up to the employee and not up to the employer. So if the employee right. wishes to keep something confidential, they should be allowed to. But the employer should not have the ability to mandate that and to force that onto the employee. It's a great point. Yeah. yeah, makes sense. I agree. Well, listen, Susan, I deeply, deeply appreciate the conversation, the discussion today. We've covered a lot of different areas that women experience within the workplace dealing with sexual harassment. Thank you, as always, for your very, very important work, for raising voices, for shedding light on the things that people go through and ways in which we can combat this and change our society to one that's better. Jeff and Casey, thank you as well. Everyone that's listening, thank you for listening. Take, Take care. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today on the Workplace Justice Podcast. Love this episode? Leave us a review and tell us what you think about our show. If you haven't subscribed yet, head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast listening app to subscribe to our show so you'll never miss a new episode. Need help? Talk to an employment lawyer today. Visit our website at nisarlaw.com or call 212-600-9534 for your free case evaluation. See you in the next episode.